Welcome to Episode 7 of the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Drs. Faith Quenzer and Molly Estes interview Dr. Peter Apunonu on his journey through emergency medicine. Hi and welcome. My name is Dr. Faith Quenzer. I'm your host for today, along with Dr. Molly Estes, here to host our podcast, Women in Emergency Medicine. We're continuing our series and interviewing Dr. Peter Apono. Welcome. Welcome to our next episode. My name is Molly Estes and I'm clinical faculty at Loma Linda University in Southern California, where I work as the clerkship director and the medical education fellowship um, director. And we are very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Peter Apunonu um, to our segment today. He is an assistant professor in emergency medicine, as well as medical toxicology at the University of Kentucky Hospital. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the director of undersea and hyperbaric medicine. Dr. Apunonu, we're going to have to delve a little bit deeper into just how many diving injuries you do have in the middle of Kentucky. But we are very pleased to welcome you to our segment today. And to kind of just get us started off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be a part of all this. I am born and raised in Toledo, Ohio. I was fortunate enough that my uh, both my parents are actually physicians. My mom was one of the first Black female urologists in Ohio. It was kind of an inspiration for me. And then my father's actually an academician and a professor of internal medicine. The family is kind of divided amongst internists for the most part on my father's side and surgeons on my mother's side. And there's me and one cousin, my cousins are them that both practice emergency medicine in the middle to you know, keep the balance of power and keep everybody disappointed. That's kind of how I pick my specialty. I went to medical school in Toledo, and then I went off to the University of Kansas for residency, and then moved on to Oregon Health Sciences for fellowship, and then wanted to be somewhat closer to home, but like not too close. I call it like striking distance. So I'm about four hours away from my parents, which is close enough that like we can see each other when we want to, but not so close that they just show up <laughs> unannounced. And so yeah, um, when I wanted a job, there was they were looking for a toxicologist in Lexington at the University of Kentucky, and I said, "All right, I'll take it." Or, I like that striking distance. Uh, you need to keep a little bit of a barrier between you and the parentals, hundred <laughs> percent, at all times. <laughs> you know, when you're not at the hospital saving lives, tell us what you do outside of the hospital with your hobbies and your interests. Tell us more about that. Well, as of late for COVID, my interests have become binge watching television shows and collecting bourbon much to my like wife's chagrin the bourbon collection in the home has increased <laughs> quite a bit but I've gotten to taste quite a few different things I used to do travel I used to try and combine travel with work as well so you know I would think I'd like to present at like the Emirates Society of Emergency Medicine so I have an excuse to go back to Dubai in December and avoid you know the cold weather that is Lexington Kentucky and move back to the warm weather that is UAE at that time of year other than that, every once in a while, I do get up to go see my family or my family likes to come down and visit. I'm super excited because my younger brother is playing soccer at Bowling Green and apparently Bowling Green State University and the University of Kentucky are in the same conference, at least for soccer. So I'll be able to see him play a couple of times a year, assuming COVID allows it. And then, you know, quite annoyingly following like college football because I can't help but say it. I'm an Ohio State Buckeye. So I'm super excited for this national championship game and recognize that we are a very obnoxious group of people come football season. 
So what we're hearing you say is we're all invited to your house uh, for the tailgate and the bourbon tasting. In the meantime, what's uh, what's the most recent thing you binged? Give me a, give me a new Netflix show I need to dive into. Oh, you know, what is the most recent thing? I just finished A Teacher on Hulu, which was which was pretty good. Uh, a little sad, but, but pretty good. I am now five episodes into Your Honor just because I love Brian Cranston as an actor and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. My wife keeps falling asleep sometimes during it, but she'll get over it and we'll have to keep watching anyways. And then sadly enough to admit, like even since, <laughs> since COVID has started, I have made it through literally all the cartoons I used to watch as a kid, all of Batman, the animated series <laughs> over again. And yeah, I, it's my shameful, shameful binge for the, <laughs> for COVID season. No shame, no shame in loving Batman, okay? Absolutely not. I jumped a little bit into uh, the 80s Thundercats, just a bit. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So you alluded to this a little bit already, but what is it about medicine that inspired you to become a physician, specifically emergency medicine? You you kind of made the go-to joke that most of us make about being the rebel and the family and all of that, but tell us more. Yeah, so initially I actually wasn't thinking about going into medicine at all. I don't know, it was probably like a little rebellion in my own because, you know, your parents are physicians so everyone tells you you'll be a great doctor. I actually wanted to be an engineer and then uh, figured out somewhere in my junior year of college that I didn't want to be an engineer. And (laughs) I uh, actually had considered pharmacy a little bit and took a few undergraduate pharmacy classes. And finally I had a conversation with my dad and he was like, well, if you're going to do pharmacy, why won't you do medicine? And I had no reason that (laughs) I shouldn't. And and then the more and more I kind of thought about it, like the thought of potentially being stuck in retail pharmacy wasn't something that I really wanted to do. So medicine it was. And, you know, on my journey, it was, it was fun. I, I started medical school and I really thought I wanted to do infectious disease. I really liked tropical medicine and, you know, like I had done medical microbiology in undergrad and I really liked mycology. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. That's super cool. I'm going to find weird diseases. And then I shadowed in a clinic sometime during my first year and it was a HIV clinic and, you know, they're doing great work for people and it's a terrible disease, but I was like, this is not interesting to me in the least. You know, if we manage your medications and your health otherwise correctly, and you do your follow-up, you will live a near normal life anyway. So it's like that, that is not the weird, super cool infection that I wanted. And so I kind of had to figure out what I wanted to do. And then come, I'm finishing my first year. I'm still talking to the one infectious disease physician. I came up with a research project because MRSA was real big. And we were like, well, we were swabbing everyone in the nose for MRSA. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of other warm, dark places on your body. <laughs> like, like warm, dark, moist places. So like, there's no reason that MRSA can only grow on your nose, right? And we got to talking and she actually introduced me to the chair of our emergency department was Chris Brickman at the time. And he said, yeah, I have, a, I have the same question. And so I wrote up an IRB and we swabbed everyone that came in and consented. We swabbed them in the nose and the armpit and the groin to see. And what we found was about half of the people were still carrying it in their groin at the same time. Armpit was super rare to actually grow anything in like my own personal explanation is the antibiotics that are in deodorant or something else that kept that away. But I got to hang out in the emergency department for, you know, the entire summer after my first year and was like, yes, this is what I really want to do. And so 
<laughs> from then on, it was, you know, stuck in emergency medicine. I kept doing research there mostly because I really enjoyed going to ASAP. I was like, thought that was like the coolest party in the world. And my med school was like, as long as you have a poster to present, we'll send you. And I was like, well, I can come up with a research project every year to make sure that there is a poster to get that done. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah. And then I, I came to match in Kansas. And I, I really thought when I was in Kansas, when I was leaving for that I was going to do a fellowship in critical care. I thought that was going to be my thing. And then uh, my first, I got assigned an advisor and my advisor was actually our toxicologist at Kansas. And the first thing he actually said in our advising meeting was like, well, you've published a little bit. So why don't you finish these papers? I was like, oh, okay. Well, but, so I started working on finishing his papers and he said, what do you want to do? I said, critical care. And he said, well, talk to me after you get done with your critical care month. And I did my month of critical care and I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, but, you know, what wasn't pleasant was like signing out or transferring the patient to the hospital service. And you're like, the patient's renal failure is resolved. And they're like, yeah, but what was the cause of it? And it was like, that is a great question. And that is not something that we know, but you can figure that out. I'm certain. And, you know, I kind of had, I, <laughs> yeah, I kind of had a little qualm about like, you know, is my emergency medicine training maybe necessarily the best for me to progress to critical care. I know there are other people that are successful in doing so, but for me personally, I just didn't think I knew enough general medicine to make that work. Plus it turns out I really enjoyed intoxicated patients and drugs. So <laughs> there was nothing more that I enjoyed than like learning about new drugs and finding new drugs and what these people were going through and doing. And so that kind of naturally led into toxicology at that point in which, you know, my advisor was Steve Thornton was like, see, I told you so. <laughs> I was fortunate enough in my second year to be able to do an away elective in toxicology. So I went out to Oregon Health Sciences for a month and I got to hang out with them, the tox fellows and everyone that was on rotation. And I was like, yes, these are definitely my people. I need to be here. And then I was fortunate enough to match the following year at Oregon. <laughs> That's incredible. I can relate to so many different parts of that story, particularly the, oh, I think I'm really interested in this. And nope, 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 definitely not. <laughs> Back away. Back away. <laughs> yeah, I think it broke my dad's heart a little bit. I think he wanted another internist and he was super happy because he had talked about he wanted to do a critical care fellowship and then didn't. He blames me for that because my mom was pregnant. He was like, I couldn't do the fellowship because you were coming. And I was like, well, that's a choice on your own part, but it's <laughs> fine. But, you had something to do with that, Pops. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned this a little bit about just the people who, you know, help shape your career, but um, who would you identify as your mentors in your medical journey? And what was it about them that really inspired you the most? You know, the interesting thing is, like, I, I can't even say that I have them as past mentors because they're all still mentors to me at this point. So, you know, Chris Brickman was the one that when I was in medical school was the one that got me interested in emergency medicine and kind of gave me the ability to do the research that I wanted to do. And, you know, still to this day, I harass that poor man. I remember being <laughs> when I was uh, coming into my second year of fellowship, Ohio State was playing Clemson for the national championship down in uh uh, Arizona. And I know Chris is also an Ohio State alumni. So usually if I'm at a Ohio State game, I can text him and harass him because he's usually somewhere around. And 
I knew he would be at the game even after we lost. And so I totally crashed his family's like New Year's party at the restaurant <laughs> to go to go hang out with him. <laughs> yeah, and I, I still talk to him for career advice at this point. And then Steve Thornton was my advisor when I was a resident in Kansas. He's the one that really kind of pushed me towards toxicology. And, you know, I took over as the director of our poison, the Kentucky Poison Center last January. He's the director of the Kansas Poison Center. So whenever I need advice on managing the Poison Center or, you know, on trying to get someone else hired or getting a consult service going, he's always there as well. And then, you know, in, in fellowship, I had Rob Hendrickson, who was our program director, who I still periodically harassed a little bit less than I used to when I need assistance with writing or anything like that. <laughs> the most interesting mentorship story that I ever had was the CDC and Emory have a combined medical toxicology fellowship, which is also the one my dad wanted me to go to, but I was like, I don't know. I don't like Atlanta that much. Maybe I don't want to be there. And so it's a two-day interview. The first day was at the CDC and the second day was at Emory. And so as part of the interview, they put you up in the hotel and they they have a boatload of toxicologists. So they're kind of like forcing in the time to interview with all of them. And so one of the interviews is literally on the drive. So I get a text from this physician. It's Ziad Kazi who tells me I'm going to be picking you up and taking you and we'll, we'll have a discussion on the drive. So I come out of the hotel. He's there getting the car. Um, before we get started, he says, you know, I took a look over your CV and one of your letters of recommendation is from Chris Brickman. I've been trying to get in touch with him do you have a cell phone number? So I said, yeah, and I gave him his cell phone number and he punches it in the car and he calls and Chris answers the phone and they start laughing and joking. And, you know, for the first five minutes of the drive is basically them trading stories and talking terribly about me as though I'm not in the car. <laughs> I only come to find out later that Ziad's older brother is also a physician is a mean Kazi, and I think he was at one point the president of AAEM, and him and Chris knew each other very well. But Ziad and Chris also knew each other, and this was part of their interview, and they were just having fun. Flash forward to I've now become faculty at Kentucky, and it's my first year. I put together a poster, something to present up in at the Emirates Society of Emergency Medicine in Dubai. My poster's hanging up, and someone comes walking past, and it's Ziad again remembers me says hello we have a good laugh and then about 20 minutes later he comes back around and says hey you know one of our speakers couldn't get a visa into the country and so we have a slot open do you want to give a presentation a case presentation and I said yes yes I do and he said do you have any that are interesting and I was like well I certainly do I have one about pyrethroids that just I just went through and he was like perfect because I still use a lot of pyrethroids around here and so that was my first time speaking internationally <laughs> and I guess I did well enough because from that point on Ziad has invited me to speak in other places with him and I keep going <laughs> and saying yes and <laughs> yeah um, and to that point now that I'm kind of into my faculty portion of my career Ziad's been a solid mentor for that and helping me get through things like promotion and tenure preparing myself in that regard but all four of them <laughs> I still get to bother and are still very helpful <laughs> That's amazing. There's a, there's nothing better than those moments, especially as a young trainee, when you realize, oh, this world of emergency medicine and, you know, toxicology, especially, this is super small. <laughs> this is super small. And everybody knows everybody else. And why am I, you know, the new kid on the block constantly? <laughs> You've had this incredible, amazing journey, hop skipping your way across the country. 
but every single time we make transitions in our lives, there are always these moments when you just kind of take a step back and you're like, oh, I don't really feel like anybody's taking me seriously. Has that ever happened to you? How did you resolve that? You know, I, I had a few run-ins when I was uh, a resident that kind of went that way when I really felt I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't being given my due or treated seriously. Part of my problem was I knew Toledo was a small world and my family were physicians in that world. So the only thing I knew was that I did not want to stay there. The last name is pretty recognizable and the face and apparently my laugh, it comes from my mother and everyone recognizes that. So I knew I didn't want that in my life for people to figure that out early. So going to Kansas went well, but admittedly I had a, a pretty weird encounter in my second year when during my second year of residency, I was on a pediatric emergency medicine shift at one of the children's hospitals in town. And actually much to my delight, one of the, one of the girls that was, she was a year or two ahead of me in high school was actually the pediatric surgery fellow. When I got there, small world, you know, I, her brother was two years ahead of me and we had played basketball together and I walk in and I go, wow, that's a face I didn't expect to see. Cause she's at, I can't remember if it was Beaumont, I think, for surgery residency. What are you doing in Kansas City? But during my time there, I was presenting a patient. I presented a patient, and my attending at the end said, I bet your parents are very proud of you. And, yeah, that was the look. I was like, why? What? I was like, why wouldn't they be? Did I do something? I wouldn't. I was like, they are. But what? what? And she, she replied, well, you're the first in your family to go to college, right? And I was, <laughs> I, I was happy that I stayed reserved because I had a lot of choice phrases to say at that point and choice things to say. But I, I said, why would you, why would you think that? And she said, oh, the, the surgery fellow told me that. And I said, no, she didn't. And I said, yeah, yeah, she did. I said, no, she didn't. We went to high school together and our parents are actually in a urology practice together. So I know that <laughs> she knows that not the first to go to college, you know, in my head, I was like, man, the only thing I'm first to do in my family is fellowship. And I can't even be decided if that's actually the, was the proper choice or not. Like, I'm happy now, but at the time it was like, Ugh, who knows what it could be. And so, you know, that really, that really set me back for a, a couple of days. Cause I knew I had to keep returning because it was my month long rotation there to keep returning and wonder if that was something that everybody else was thinking, you know, that I hadn't earned the right to be there or more so that, you know, I wasn't smart enough or that my family wasn't smart enough. I was partially insulted for that and like super insulted for my parents who had already been successful and, and achieved what they had. It was a little bit hard and it's something that, you know, periodically creeps up in the back of your mind is, you know, is, am I here on my own merit? Or does someone think that I'm not here on my own merit? I know what I've done and how do I have to prove that? But, you know, I also don't want to be a braggart or ostentatious and it's rude. I shouldn't carry my CV around and pass it out to people to let them know that I've earned the right to be where I am. <laughs> Holy cow, man. I can't, I can't even imagine that just even hearing that story, like makes me cringe. Like I, I'm so sorry. It's always interesting because when these moments creep up for all of us and it, it always is like a slightly different version of the same story, but you kind of hit this pivotal moment of where one, how do I handle it? I, geez, if I could give you any sort of commendation, I think you handled that in the best way anybody possibly could. I probably would have just turned around and walked out of the room, to be honest with you. Yeah. But do you think that this 
this conflict and now this lingering thing in the back of your head, has that empowered you professionally? Do, do you think that that hurts or hinders you in any way? I honestly think to, like, to a certain extent it motivated me because I really didn't ever want someone to ask me that question again. <laughs> you know, okay. I clearly know what I know. Maybe I need to know more. You know, it would have been fine to say like, I think you need to study more. You need to learn this more, but it really motivated me to really be like, if you ever have a, you, you don't need to question why I'm here. I know why I'm here. And if it's necessary, you should know why I'm here. That's so powerful. Wow. <laughs> you know, just, just switching gears a little bit. So how do you think this, this pandemic has affected you and your hospital and just your overall perspective of how we're doing medicine? It, it has been a massive change. You know, we go from an ED that's easily a hundred beds. And I can say at the outset, you know, our, our state public health officials and our governor told everyone, please, you know, don't go to the hospital unless you're very ill and everything else. And I had my doubts about Kentuckians and their willingness to listen to that. And I could not have been more wrong because early in our pandemic, I remember being on a night shift and, you know, we had a hundred bed ED where we're used to having greater than 30, 40 borders at a time. And we had eight patients total in the ER. So we had more residents and APPs and attendings there than we had patients to be seen. It was the most bizarre thing for me. Slowly, of course, our volumes have crept back up. We're not quite back to normal, but it was, it was very concerning because I was also wondering, I was like, man, am I going to still have a job? Because if people don't come into the ER, there's only so long that this hospital is going to continue to pay me. And I'm the most recent hire here. <laughs> Easily I could be the first one to go unless they can convince somebody else to retire in this moment. Uh, you know, it's, it's made the practice a little bit harder because you know, before we're I'm not a big person to shake hands with my patients because I've had a couple attendings that were like, don't ever do that. And always have, one of them always has a story about like, you know, someone with tertiary syphilis that they walked in and shook hands with. And you're like, yeah, I don't ever want to do that. You know, so it was kind of more of a hello, <laughs> wave my hand or maybe like a fist bump if we walk in the room. But to be more conscientious of the number of things that I'm actually touching the room and the number of times that I'm touching the patient and how frequently I'm changing my gloves or my mask and I'm washing my hands and where I'm going from one room to the next where, you know, it had been nothing to just walk from, you know, three rooms in a row, go one in the next one to the next one and go, man, now I have to worry. Like, you know, was that, was that a COVID rule out? Should I wait a minute? Like how, what PPE do I have to put on? How much do I need to put on? Like, do I really need to go in the room? Because we're fortunate enough, we've also put iPads and cameras in so we can have the conversations without going into the room with our patients. So it's been a, it's been a drastic change to say the least. My, my practice is not quite the same and it's probably, I, I don't know, I, I would think from a patient perspective, it almost seems a little bit colder and more distant than it ever did before. I don't necessarily know if an emergency medicine were always the most kind and warming people. We're not all pediatricians, but we're still like, I think polite and outgoing, but you know, now I'm standing six feet away from you further away and almost shouting at you and, you know, my poor elderly patients that are there by themselves that are cold, <laughs> that are cold, that are alone or that are hard of hearing. Now I'm having to scream from across the room and I can't get too close or be too comforting. Outside of that, like my social life has taken like a drastic hit because I can't go anywhere or do anything. I mean, we're, we're lucky in Kentucky that at least we're still able to do outdoor dining and, 
and I think they've they've opened up our indoors now to I think like a quarter or 33 percent or something like that so I still go to a restaurant if I want to but admittedly I don't know that I want to go to a restaurant and hang around a bunch of people that I don't know how they're doing true very true so what are some ways that you've you know cope with the pandemic and you know this curtailing of your social life and things that you like to do that have helped you normally you know get through the these really tough shifts you know even before the pandemic what do you do i can say that uh my poor mother i have taken advantage of her insomnia quite a bit so you know where i may have only spoken to her a few times in a week um, unfortunately for her now, she gets a phone call from me on the way into shift and on the way out of shift. And that has to last about the 15 minute drive until I get home, unless she's like, I really need to sleep. <laughs> like I said, I've taken the binge watching a lot of things and going back through like all my nostalgic childhood television shows. I haven't started reading as much as I really hoped that I, <laughs> that I would, but I have. And then, you know, I've slowly fallen into the Peloton bandwagon. I didn't think that I would ever do that, but there's now a peloton in my home it, actually when they announced the lockdowns my my wife like would go work out every morning and i was like man you being here for like those extra two hours out of the day is really stressful because you were so full of energy and you needed to get it out and so finally i came back from a shift at like 11 and she was like right there at the door waiting and wanted to talk to me and i was like i well I was like, you know what, why don't we just go ahead and order that Peloton <laughs> that you wanted right now? Because <laughs> it's not going to go well for either of us if we don't have Marriage that. saving Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, we were in like that last group of people that got it just before, like they were delaying deliveries. And so I was like, okay, it is, it's been life-saving. So, you know, like you can't get out and play basketball or anything like that like I used to. So, you know, I have to ride and scream at the screen on the Peloton instead. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love it. It's so true though. It's like any little bit of semi-faux outdoorsy, you know, things we used to do activities are right at the top of everybody's list. Yeah. It was interesting for us because like, we went through snake bite season, you know, through the spring is normally everyone goes to the Red River Gorge and everybody gets bit by copperheads. There's usually like two a day or something like that. And I think that, you know, we maybe had 10 over the entire season because people weren't even outdoors doing anything. And it was like, man, they're not gonna let me do toxicology here if I don't do the snake bite. Someone's gotta get bit by something. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a sudden increase in the snake population in your region, we'll know. Yes. We'll know exactly what's happening there. You can't drum up business for yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how hard I try. <laughs> So you've had, again, you've had this incredible journey. Um, what advice would you have for residents or young faculty as far as uh, getting involved, deciding your career trajectory? Looking back, what words of wisdom can you have for the next generation? You know, I think the most important thing is I don't know that I would have gotten where I did without the mentors that I had that were at least there to sit and like listen and help give me some career advice, you know, not what can I say? If you're looking, there's nothing wrong with having multiple mentors. Some people are always like, well, I have a mentor. Like you can have 40 if you want them. And not every one of them has to provide you with career advice. If you want a career mentor, you can have one. If you want a research mentor, you can have one. If you want someone that you can just call and ask for a beer and tell them how miserable your day was, but as another faculty member that can help guide you through that, then I would definitely take advantage of that person as well. So, you know, 
reach out and find as many people as you can. Some of the advice that I got was early in the career, you know, try to be as active as you can and try and integrate yourself into your hospital group and into, you know, your department as best you can. And then what I also got was, but don't ever be afraid to say no, <laughs> because you can't say yes to everything. If you say yes to everything, you'll not do any of those things well, and you'll wind up setting yourself back a little bit and you're going to, you're going to drive yourself insane as you can't keep the work-life balance that you really, really want to have, but know that, you know, if, if being on the PNT committee is really what you want to do in your career, it may go far to be the person that's the EM representative on the blood bank committee for a little while and know that things can be a stepping stone and know that just because you started doing it doesn't mean that you can't say I can no longer take on this task or that I want to progress to something else. Man, that's great advice. So what are some things that really just inspire you every day as you go to work and as you are an you know, uh, emergency physician? What, what gives you hope about our specialty? You know, I always say that, you know, what are, what are we, anybody, anytime, anywhere? And in my mind, that's the purest heart of a physician is that's, that's where we all started was we just wanted to help and it didn't matter who it was and it didn't matter where it was and it didn't matter when it was. And, you know, us and some of the other folks and some other specialties still stick with that motto. Like I can see anybody at any point in time. What really inspires me is just kind of the education that I get to give to the residents and the mentorship that I get to give to my residents to know that they're going to go off and, you know, once COVID is over, have many opportunities while they still have some now that it, it's going to get better, you know, knock on wood, I, it can't really get much worse. Hopefully <laughs> it can't really get much worse, but that, you know, in all, all in all, we went through, we're in a pandemic and, you know, we still stuck to our guns and we still see everyone that we can, and we still do our best any given day, you know, outpatient folks got to shutter their doors, close their doors and tell people not to come in and switch to telemedicine and whatnot. And, we didn't get to do that. We just took it on. Well, we'll find the PPE or we'll find a way to care for you and we'll do it safely as best we can. And, you know, even if we can't, some of us are, we're still going to risk our life to make your life better in the process. And not everyone can say that, but I know every one of us emergency physicians can. Absolutely. We're still here. Our doors are yeah. still open. If you come to us, we will still help you to the best of our abilities and then beyond. Well, Peter, Dr. Apunono, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just been a pleasure having you on this segment. I look forward to connecting with you more in the future. And to all of our listeners out there, remember, we, we are emergency physicians. We are here together. Nobody's in this alone. We all have a team behind us. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.